your life story overlapped by God's story can make history. Your life story overlapped by God's story can make history. You know, life comes at us in a lot of different seasons, doesn't it? There can be seasons of grief. There can be seasons of great and really everything in between there. Some seasons come as chronological. You know, there's, there's childhood and then there's adolescence and then there's adulthood. Some seasons are <clears throat> spiritual where we're, we're closer to God than we've ever been before. Or maybe it's a season of trials. Or maybe it's a season where God seems distant and we haven't heard from God in a long time. <clears throat> or maybe it, it's, a, it's a really emotional season. It's a season of uncertainty, but, but a season of excitement when we're starting something new, whether it's a new relationship, a new job. Maybe it's a decision about moving or starting a family or something else, but there's all that excitement in there. And again, comes with that a lot of uncertainty. Or maybe it's a season of heaviness that comes with the loss of a loved one. I mean, there's lots and lots of seasons. The list could go on and on. And really, we've got to acknowledge that seasons do not happen in a vacuum. They don't happen in isolation. They happen concurrently, don't they? And so a season of great personal loss can also be a season of great spiritual gain. Like Pastor Mike talked about two weeks ago when he talked about living in the land in between. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. How does God use this time in between? So my first question for you this morning is, how would you describe your current season? Is it a season of excitement? Maybe things are going really well for you and things are going up and to the right. <clears throat> or is it a difficult season, a season of conflict, a season of challenge? And maybe if you were honest, you'd say, this season has lasted a whole lot longer than I thought it would. Are you just grinding it out? Are you just tolerating this season until you can get to the next one? Or are you thriving in this season? Because the next question I want to ask you is, how can you thrive in this season, in every season, and live life with meaning and purpose and significance and passion? <clears throat> There's one thing that I know about you, and that is that you want to live life with as few regrets as possible. Now, in reality, we want to live life with no regrets, but that ship has already sailed for every one of us, right? But if it's a good season, you don't want to look back at a good season and say, I was distracted by all the good things that were happening. And I, I wish I had been more present in that season. Or I wish that I had been a better steward of the good things that God gave me in that season. If it's a bad season... You don't want to come out of it regretting what you said, maybe regretting something that you did, or, or, or wondering, 
is there a life lesson that I could have learned in that season? So what do you want to say about this season of your life? When you tell the story of your life, what do you want to be able to say about it? So so that you can tell the whole story with no regrets, without leaving anything out, that you don't have to worry about somebody coming along later and unraveling your story because they know something about your story that you chose to leave out. What do you want to be able to say about this season of your life? It may surprise you to know that the Bible actually has something to say about this. The Apostle Paul, who lived about half of his life with great passion, later came to regret that after he met Jesus. So passion alone is not enough. But he wrote this in Ephesians. He said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. So I invite you this morning to lean in as we look at what it looks like to live every season with significance, with meaning, and with purpose. If you don't get this, You may walk away wondering, what does it take to make life matter? And to do this today, we're going to look at the story of a 2,900-year-old guy in the Bible whose story shows us how to live every season with meaning, with significance, with passion, and with little regret. First, I want to give you a little bit of background. You may know that the first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. And then there come a couple of guys that you probably heard of. There was David and then his son Solomon. And then there was a whole bunch of other kings whose name we can't recall. And we really probably don't know a whole lot about most of them. And so 200 years passes and we get to around 865 BC. And our guy makes his first appearance on the scene. There's no introduction of him. No description of him. There's almost no details about him, except the Bible says that he was from Gilead, which biblical historians can't even pinpoint with any accuracy. And yet this guy is one of the most significant figures in the history of Israel, right up there with Abraham and Moses and David. This guy experiences higher highs and lower lows than most of us will ever imagine. This guy's life is filled with turmoil. He experiences the the power of God, and yet he also experiences the depths of personal depression. At times, he is bold and decisive. At other times, he is timid and fearful and tentative. He experiences victory and defeat, and yet he lives in such a way that his story, overlapped by God's story, makes history. Elijah is one of the most interesting, colorful characters, figures in the Bible. He's one of my favorites for reasons that will become obvious here in just a minute. But we're going to use his story as a backdrop to look at three principles about how we can live life with meaning, significance, and purpose. 
The first one is live bold. Live bold. If you want to experience the heart of God, you must step boldly into what he's calling you to do. We first meet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. When God tells him to go tell a godless king that there's going to be a drought in the country. And, and Elijah boldly responds. He goes and tells the king that. Next thing you know, Elijah is running for his life. He's out hiding in the wilderness. God provides him water to drink through a stream. He provides food for him. Ravens bring it. He's there for about three years, I believe. And then the brook dries up. We looked at this story a year or two ago. And then God inspires, inspires uh, Elijah to go to a foreign country, a godless country. And again, Elijah boldly responds. He goes to this country and God tells him to talk to a starving widow who's making her last meal with a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And he goes up to her and he says, give me something to eat. And she makes him a cake. She says, we were fixing to make this and, and then we were just going to die. But she, she makes him a meal. And then he's there for, a long, for years and her food never runs out. And then after some time, a little bit later, the son dies. Elijah prays and brings, God brings him back to life. Now, I think you'd agree that Elijah after this experience, has probably had a newer, deeper understanding of God after that. God took on a new dimension for Elijah after that experience. In the next chapter, we see Elijah, again inspired by God, in a showdown with 450 prophets of the idol god Baal. This was epic. There was a huge crowd there. I don't know. I think ESPN game day might have been there. But this was a test to see whose who's God, who's God would respond to his worshipers. And what we find is that Elijah's previous experience with the widow and the brook and all that, God's pre, Elijah's previous experience had made Elijah even bolder. He talks to all the people and he says, how long will you waver? And the word there is the, is, is the word that uh, talks about walking with a limp. How long will you waver? How long will you limp? How long will you go along without convention, conviction? How long will you be half-hearted? How long will you waver between two opinions? And what Elijah was really saying, how long are you going to waver between two gods? He said, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, you may be familiar with this story, but I think it's very important to realize that at this point in the story, Elijah had no idea what God was going to do. He did not know what was going to happen next. What we do know is that the prophets of Baal start carrying on and they're praying and they're cutting themselves with swords and on and on and on. And they do that for about six hours. And what happens? Nothing. Big surprise, right? Nothing happens. And then comes my favorite part. The first recorded instance of trash talking that I, in, in history, I think. Because Elijah starts, starts mocking them, really. He says, hey, maybe why don't you shout louder? Maybe your God's asleep. Or maybe he's traveling. 
could be. He's busy. Come on, come on, come on. And that just made him go harder and harder. I don't know. It's not recorded, but it could be that Elijah started talking about Baal's mama in there somewhere. I'm not sure. I would have done that, but I'm not, I'm not sure if he would have done that. But then Elijah does some anti-fire stuff. He takes four jars of water and has them poured on the sacrifice. The sacrifice, the altar, the stones, there's a trench around it, starts filling up the trench. He has that done three different times before he steps up boldly and prays a 60-word prayer. says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O God, answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I still believe that Elijah didn't know exactly what God was going to do. But in that moment, after that prayer, God rains down fire from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar, burns up the stones, dries up all the water in the ditch. Here's the question. Where does a guy who was hiding from the king in chapter 17 find the courage in chapter 18 to challenge the very same king and 450 of his prophets? He found that courage in his personal experience with God. He'd seen God respond. He'd seen God deliver. He'd seen God respond to his personal obedience. See, we read these stories in the Bible and we act, we act as if the end is a foregone conclusion. Because we know how this ends up, we fail to have an appreciation for the, for the uncertainty, the fear perhaps, that's in these situations. See, Elijah put himself in a position to be, to be utterly humiliated and probably killed if God had not come through. But God did come through. Not, not because Elijah challenges him, but because Elijah boldly responds to God's direction in his life. If you want to experience the heart of God, you must step boldly into what God is calling you to do. And perhaps what is my, perhaps my favorite quote of all time, Stephen Furtick says, if your vision for your life is not intimidating to you, it's probably an insult to God. If your vision for your life is not intimidating to you, it's probably an insult to your God. What keeps us from living boldly? It's fear, isn't it? See, Satan uses fear to box us into a very small life. If, if he can convince you that you are afraid of heights, you'll stay on the ground. If he can convince you that you ought to be afraid of what's out there, you'll stay inside. If he can convince you that you should be afraid of being embarrassed, you'll never take any risks. If Satan can convince you that you should fear what God moves you to do, you will freeze in place. Fear. A.W. Tozer said this, faith is all important in the life of a soul. Without faith, there can be no approach to God, no spiritual life 
at all. So that's a couple of stories in Elijah's life. What about, let's fast forward about a thousand years to Jesus' time. Are there any more current examples of people boldly responding to God? And of course, there, you may know that there are many, but let's look at one. There's a guy named Peter in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus comes walking towards him on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. What makes a guy decide to try walking on water? Jesus and a bold desire to be obedient. And so what's the result of that? Peter experiences Jesus like no one else has ever experienced Jesus. There's another story, an eyewitness account of four guys who wanted to take their friend to Jesus. They knew they had to get him to Jesus. But Jesus was not accessible. There were dozens of people around Jesus. So what did these, what bold decisions did these guys decide to do? In Mark chapter 2, it says, And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when, they saw, when, they, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out. <clears throat> What makes five guys decide to cut a hole in somebody else's roof? Jesus. And and what happened? The miraculous. See, your life story, overlapped by God's story, can make history. And And there are lots of other stories, but what I want us to see today is the commonality between these stories. God moves in their heart, they're obedient, and God responds. And they see new dimensions of God that they have never experienced before. Through it all, God's consistent response to obedient boldness is to provide. You will find this all through Scripture, God's God's consistent response to immediate boldness is to provide. Think about it. He provided food and water for Elijah. He provided flour and oil for the widow when they were with Elijah. He even provided life for the son. He provided fire to consume the sacrifice. He provided rescue for Peter. He provided healing for the paralytic. God's consistent response to obedient boldness is to provide. Do you really think that God's going to invite you and move you to do something and not provide? There are people in this room who knew God called them to go on a global adventure, 
who knew God called them and moved them to foster or adopt or, and moved in them to make some other big faith decision. And they didn't know how it was going to work out. They didn't know where the money was coming from, but they responded in obedience. And it wasn't a thing like, well, financially, I'm going to just have to move some things around and make this work. No, they didn't know where the money was coming from. But the money showed up, sometimes seemingly out of nowhere, right? I mean, can I have a witness? Is there anybody in here has seen God work in their life like that? You have, haven't you? If you want to experience the heart of God, you must step boldly into what he's calling you to do. Are you familiar with the Navy pilot group, the Blue Angels? Okay, these are guys that fly in tight formations and precise maneuvers, and they have very little margin for error. And I've always wondered when I was looking at them, I've always wondered how do they all just not crash and end up in a, in a heap on the ground? How do they know that? Because, I mean, after all, when you're going 700 miles an hour and you're this far from the guy in front of you, if, if you're off by a millisecond, he goes up, you're going to blow right past him and you just screwed up the whole thing, right? How did they do that? Well, I heard something recently that talked about how they do that. They respond to a verbal command from their leader. When the leader says, we're going to do, we're going to climb or we're going to dip or we're going to roll, that's when they go. And here's what's interesting. They can't wait until they see the guy next to them or the guy in front of them move. If they wait until they see the maneuver, it's too late. They've got to respond when they hear the command. And isn't it like that with our God? When he gives a command, that's our time to respond. Not when we see, we think, we think we see things all aligning perfectly, but rather when we hear the command, that's the time for us to respond. So what is God calling you boldly to? To go, to do, to be. Because that is where you will find and experience God. What's keeping you from living bold? Now, I could probably stop right here, but we know that every message really has more than one point. So we're going to keep going if that's all right with you. So first is live bold. Second is live endless. If you want to leave a footprint of God, you must see beyond the end. If you want to leave a footprint of God, you must see beyond the end. See, there's another thing that I know about you. And that is you have an innate instinct for immortality, for living forever. God has hardwired that desire into your brain. In fact, Solomon said that God has planted eternity in the human heart. And that's why death seems so unfair is because we are wired to live forever. If you walk away with nothing else today, please get this. We are not human beings presently having a spiritual experience. We are not human beings presently or currently having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings 
currently having a human experience. See, I believe that our striving for significance, for for purpose, for meaning is actually a reflection of an innate God-given desire. God's design, God intended for this life to be lived in harmonious relationship with him, but we messed it up. We messed it up by living disobedient, self-centered, rebellious lives. The things that we obsess about, success, influence, pleasure, those actually reflect a desire for a restoration with God. Have you considered that that thing that you obsess about, that thing that perhaps you're addicted to, that thing that you are investing your life in, have you considered that perhaps that is a reaction to the idea that you know that your relationship with God is inadequate? You're maybe you're trying to, to make God love you by being successful. Maybe you're trying to fill a void in your life by, by seeking after something that gives you great pleasure. Have you considered that that thing that you're chasing is actually a reflection of your need for a harmonious, or your desire for a harmonious relationship with God? And the path to restoration with God only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. Because only Jesus can forgive your disobedient, rebellious sin. And only Jesus can give us joy and hope and love and peace and give us that harmonious relationship with God that he intended. You know, maybe the boldest thing that God is moving you to today moving you to today is to acknowledge that you need Jesus. If you choose to follow Jesus, I I can't promise you your life's going to be perfect. But what I can promise you is that you'll never regret it. Maybe the boldest thing God's moving you, you to do today is to acknowledge that you need Jesus. Live endless. Edwin Chapin has a quote that says, every action of your life touches on some chord that will vibrate in eternity. I heard a quote recently or saw a quote that I just love. It says that Jesus followers are peeping toms at the keyhole of eternity. Jesus followers are peeping toms at the keyhole of eternity. You know, Elijah's greatest experiences came when he, when he saw beyond his current experience, beyond his current, his current circumstances, beyond the immediate to see what God might do. In the low moment of the widow's son dying, Elijah hears her declare, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. See, for, for Elijah, it was more than flour and oil in a drought. It was more than even giving life to the lifeless. It was about a woman recognizing the one true and living God working around her. In, in the high moment of seeing God rain down fire from heaven, 
Elijah hears people who are wavering between God, two gods declare, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, for Elijah, it was more than about winning a showdown with 450 prophets. It was about people seeing the power of God and quit their wavering and start following him. At the end of the story with Peter walking on the water, it says, those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God, meaning Jesus. The friends with the paralytic, the story says, this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Last month, I had the opportunity to go uh, go on vacation to the beach and we took some of our family with us. One of those members of our family was uh, my six-year-old granddaughter named Reagan. Yeah, Um, and she's all that. I'm just telling you. So what do you do when you come to the the beach? We all do this, right? We go to the beach the first day. We just got there, and we, we run up to where the waves are, and then waves come in, and we run back, right? And then we run out there where the waves are. And when they come in, we try not to get our feet back and feet wet and we run back. And we do that two or three times. And we've done that for a little bit. And I said, all right, Reagan, let's go in and let's jump over the waves. And she's only six, so she didn't know any better. She goes, yeah, let's, let's jump over the waves. So she goes out there with me. And as the waves started coming, she starts holding on tighter to my arm. And the first wave comes and she starts wanting to take, pull me back into the beach. She goes, I want, I want to get out of here. And I, I'm thinking, this is what I'm looking at. I'm thinking, Reagan, I got this great view and there's nothing coming and it's, it's beautiful. Come on, let's jump the wave. And then I realized that this is what Reagan's view was. All she could see was the top of the first wave. She didn't have the perspective to see over that. When all I can see is the next wave, I have to remind myself that there's another perspective. There's another story being written here. What was the last decision that you made that was based on faith instead of circumstances? What's the last life decision that you made that was based on faith instead of circumstances? Because if you want to leave a footprint of God, you must see beyond the end. Live bold, live endless, live spent. And I know every Sunday we say here at Grace Point, at the end we say live sent. For now, I want to add a letter to that and say live spent. If you want to fully experience God, You must leave it all on the field. Coaches talk like this, right? They say you got to give it all you have, not holding anything back. I don't know how many team sports there were in the first century, so I know of no coach speak quotes from the first century. But here's what Jesus said. In Luke 9, 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, Take up his cross daily and follow me. Can I tell you something? It's not enough to follow Jesus like you follow someone on Instagram and Twitter. It's not enough to follow Jesus. Is not, following Jesus is not a part-time casual stroll in the park. Maybe liking or not liking 
what he says or how he moves. No, following Jesus is an all-out, all-consuming pursuit that gives life significance and meaning and purpose. Matthew 19 may be the saddest story in the Bible. There's a young man that comes to Jesus and he asks, teacher, what good thing must I get to inherit, to get eternal life? What thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus points out to him that there's a lot of commands that have been given and all that. And the guy says, done, I've, I've done all that. But then the young man asks a question that reveals that something is missing in his life. He says, what do I still lack? See, on paper, he had everything. He was young. He was rich. The Bible says he has great wealth. But something's missing and he knows it. And that something that's missing is significance and meaning and purpose. So Jesus issues a challenge to him and says, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. I think it's safe to say that Jesus was asking this young man to give up his certainty, to sacrifice his certainty, the things that were the byproduct of perhaps his wealth or his position or his possessions. And Jesus was saying, I want you to get rid of all those things that you're putting your faith in. I dare say that no one in the history of mankind has ever had a bigger internship opportunity than this guy. And he says, no. Why? I don't know. But maybe because he was unwilling to to sacrifice the certainties in his life. He was unwilling to walk in faith. He wants to hold back. He's not willing to leave it all on the field. And as a result... He missed Jesus by that much. Sad story. When we last see Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, it says that when Elijah's time comes, God takes him up in a chariot, in a whirlwind, and he's gone just like that. Elijah didn't know death as the rest of us know death. Can I tell you something? I want to go out like Elijah. I want to go out like Elijah, not because of the way his existence ended on this earth, but because of the way that he lived his life all the way to the very end. Live spent. Mark Frost said that life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and proudly, proudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. You get to decide what story is written What story is told about this season, about your life? But know this, your life story 
when overlapped by God's story, will make history. Maybe you realize today, it's time for you to acknowledge, it's time for your story to be overlapped by God's story. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Oh, you know about him, but you, you, you know that you don't have a personal relationship with him. And the boldest thing you can do today is to acknowledge that you need a relationship with Jesus. Allow him to restore you to that harmonious relationship that God's always intended. Or maybe you're a Jesus follower, but you realize today that you're not living bold. You're not living endless. You're not living spent. I don't know what God is moving in your heart to do. But we're going to give you some space right now to do business with God. The band is going to play. And this is your chance right where you are to ask God what he is moving you to do.